Hello team, this is the Easy Agile podcast. I'm Sean Blake, one of your hosts here at Easy Agile. Each week on this podcast, you'll hear about our mission to help teams work better together and find balance in their daily lives. We'll interview some of the most interesting people in tech, in agile, and in leading businesses around the world to learn what it takes to make teams work better together. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Let's jump straight into the episode. Hello, everybody. I'm Sean Blake, the host of this episode of the Easy Agile podcast. I'm also head of marketing at Easy Agile, where our mission is to help teams around the world work better together. We have a fascinating guest with us today. It's John Turley from Adaptivist. John is a pragmatic agile leader with 25 years experience working in companies at all levels, from teams to C-suite, always bringing real value-adding change to the way organisations work. Dissatisfied with the standard discourse around transformation and agility, he is passionate about applying cutting-edge knowledge from fields as diverse as sociology and psychology. We're really excited to have John on the podcast today. So, John, thanks so much for being on the Easy Agile podcast. You're welcome, Sean. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. So, John, you've got a lot of experience uh, in the agile space, in the tech space, and I'm not trying to call you old, but I'd love to get a sense of what's changed over 25 years. It's It must just be night and day from, from where you started to what you see now. So there's a lot of change, and I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with old, right? I'm 48 <laughs> now, so and it's closer to 30 years now. That, that tells you when I first wrote that bit of the bio. Um, so the, the technology has changed, right? That's mind-blowing. I started off in ops and then infrastructure and project management and stuff. And at turn of the 1999-2000, it would take us three months and 50,000 quid to build a couple of web servers with a pair of load balancers and firewalls and a database at the back, right? And now we spin them up in seconds. Uh, this is profound, right? Pro- platform technology, um, uh is profound slack or, I mean, you know, platform technologies. That makes a massive difference to the way we interact. Um, scale uh, is a massive issue. That I would say that the world is sort of dichotomized into very large and, and quite small organizations. There seem to be less in the middle. It's, it's just a gut feeling. We see the, I think, trust has collapsed. We see that in the Edelman Trust Barometer. We see that complexity has increased. That's deeply problematic for us. A guy called Yanir Bayam has been measuring that one. Uh, and we see that workforce engagement is at all-time lows, uh, all-time lows through the um, uh, Gallup World Poll, right? That Those things are big, big changes. What's the same, though, is the people. The way the people think, the way we construct our reality, our mindset, if you like, the way we make sense of the world around us is very, very similar. So although we now talk a lot more about agile than waterfall, and waterfall for many is a bit of a dirty word, not for me, and same with command and control, people are taking the same mindset. This is measurable and provable. People are taking the same mindset that they had around waterfall and command and control using different language of agile and behaving in the same way. That hasn't changed. Very interesting. So you touched on trust and how basically we've seen this breakdown of trust across the board and I've just watched a documentary that's come out on Netflix around the social dilemma and how the trust that we have in in these big social media platforms is eroding and we're getting a little bit sceptical around what these big companies are, are doing to us as the customer. 
do you find that that's a hard balance with with the people that that you work with around being customer focused but still building a profitable and and growing business yeah i do yes and the, the way i think it manifests itself which again, you know, maybe, maybe we'll get into the sort of the psychology and the sociology as well as the complexity science that I'm into a bit later. But there's a very clear way that that lack of trust manifests itself. I'm not sure it's the lack of trust that manifests itself, but there's a very clear thing that's that's happening. Is there's, there's repeated patterns of behaviour. I see it all over the place in all in, in a lot of the work I do, which is one on one and with groups that people. Hold on to this idea that their view is right and anything that doesn't comply with that is wrong. You know, this is a view that comes from the predominant mindset from what Torbert and Rook uh, call the sort of expert or the achiever mindset, which, um, and it becomes a barrier to us uh, collaborating and learning together and innovating, right? If somebody with a different point of view is dismissed as wrong, then there's no, there's no common ground to start to build trust, right? Trust is eroded uh, from from the outset, and that means that we can't collaborate. And in a complex world where we need to collaborate ever more closely and learn together and innovate, that's a deep, deep problem. And the response seems to be that people actually withdraw. They withdraw into groups. Um, we might call them cliques or echo chambers. The sociologists call this process homophily, right? This is a function, lot many say, of um, platforms like Twitter. We retreat into groups that echo the opinions that we already hold, that then reinforce those opinions and separate us from the opinions of others and reinforce the opinions we have. So the gaps between the cliques grow wider, and particularly in times of... You know, COVID and the lockdown that, that we've had here and that we seem to be maybe heading back into, um, the isolation perhaps adds to that and we see it more and more. So at a time where we need to be getting out at cliques and talking with understanding with others with different views, we're actually psychologically in a difficult position to um, to be able to do that. And that, so that's how the what we might generically call the lack of trust manifests itself in, in the work that I'm doing. And as I say, I see it with almost everybody that I work with, including myself, by the way, it's not an easy thing to conquer. <laughs> so, so what does your day-to-day look like, John? I think your, your official job title is digital transformation consultant. You work for Adaptivus, one of the, the most well-known agile consulting practices in the world, I would say. What does what does that mean for you day to day? What does your what does your nine to five look like? So we're really involved in our three things. I'm really involved in three things, and it's all all about learning, collective learning, organisational learning. So we're involved in a lot of um, original research. We do that original research with um, a number of academic partners in a program that we're putting together. We've been doing a lot of the research on our own, but as it gets bigger and more credible, other partners are coming to join us in that very credible partners. And the research is uncovering uh, new learning. And that new learning points us to new consulting practices where we can take that learning and, and embed it into a workshop, say, or how we might use the research instruments that we've borrowed from academia in the real world to measure social networks or psychological complexity or the amount of autonomy in the environment. So we can then use that to work with teams to help them shift um, from a sort of functionally oriented way of working 
to a cross-functional way of working, which, you know, whether we're talking about safe and agile release trains or whether we're talking about um, uh, lean um, software management and value streams, whether we're talking at a team level or an organizational level, the challenge is essentially the same, right? We need to orientate ourselves around the creation of customer value in cross-functional teams that are focused on delivering that value, not just delivering on the, their function, right? Um, and that that switch brings with it some deep psychological challenges that we're just not really equipped to meet. So we bring uh, sort of the people and culture element, the tools and the agile methodology simultaneously to bear in teams to help them make that shift. So that's really what my day-to-day -day, uh, work looks like. So the research and the practice. Okay, research and practice. And, and when it comes to the practice side and encouraging that cross-functional collaboration. How hard is it for people to get on board with that recommendation or get on board with what the company is trying to do? Uh, for most people, it's really hard. So my experience before doing the uh, research that I guess we started a couple of years ago that I was just referring to, um, with something like this frequently, we'd often get, so I, I worked in the Agile space, um, you know, for a long time. I, I don't quite know when I started working in that space and not the full space, but a decade or two, let's say. And, and I've bumped into a repeated problem. We get our, um, let's say, I'm thinking of a specific example with a specific client about three years ago, very functionally orientated, trying to make that shift into cross-functional teams. So we got um, a group of five people together um, from different functions, so designers, testers, developers, um, a, a couple of ops um, people, and between them they should be able to obviously launch some working code within 10 days or whatever we were probably trying to sprint into the real world. Right, And they were all great people. I knew them all personally. I spent time working with them all. They were um, very sort of agile in the way they approached the development of the software that they did. And we put them in a room uh, virtually to begin with, and we asked them to produce a piece of code. It works across functional scene. Now produce a piece of code and release it. At the end of uh, at the end of the week, and they didn't. I mean, we thought, well, what on earth happened there? I don't. We didn't really understand this. We um, so we tried it again, but we we assumed that the that the problem was because we'd done it virtually, right? So this time we got everybody together in Poland as it happened in a room. We set it all up. We talked to them at the beginning. Then the people like me sort of left the room and let them get on with it. Got to the end of the week same outcome nothing had happened right and if you talk to them what well, they would say is, oh yeah you know my phone pinged and there was a support incident and oh, i just couldn't and they had lots of very plausible reasons why they couldn't come together as a cross-functional team but the fact remains twice in a row our most capable people hadn't done so we had a really long think about it uh, one other sort of senior leader in the business and myself and we realized that the only thing that could be happening the only thing that could be going wrong here is that there must be some sort of breakdown in the dialogue between the group in the room right so we ran it we ran the workshop let's call it for a third time and this time we had somebody else in the room just watching what was going on and they spotted something happen really early on one of the people from the uk said to one of the polish developers they said look we're look think of us like consultants we're here to help you you know to transfer knowledge to you so that you develop a capability so that you can do this on your own and at that moment the person who was in the room said that the, the, the dynamic in the room seemed to change. People glazed over 
And I think what it was is that that word consultant that the English person had used had a different meaning for our colleague in Krakow. I think that meaning, the meaning of consultant meant we're just here to uh, tell you what to do and not actually do anything and put ourselves on the hook for any work, just to kind of watch you do it. And, and I think at that point, they kind of went, okay, well, all right, I get it. Same old, same old. We'll do the work. You English guys talk about it because it's an English company, you know, there. And, and, and that breakdown started to occur. So the question we started to, so I've seen that all over the place. So the question we started to wrestle with in our research is what's happening? In those moments, when that dialogue breaks down, what's happening? And what we've discovered is that there is a number of research studies, the biggest is about 10,000 people, that shows that around about 50% of people are, a level, are at a level, in, it, this is 50% of leaders in a study of 10,000, right? So from middle management to senior management, so it's a skewed number. So in reality, in software teams, it's probably more than 50% of people. Have, have, have reached a level of psychological complexity that suits the environment as it was, right? But has some limitations in, in, in cross-functional working. So they have a mindset, a way of making their reality that works well in a functional environment, but is challenged in a cross-functional environment. And that uh, mindset, that this way of thinking, which is very prevalent, is a way of thinking where individuals draw their self-esteem from their expertise, right? Just to put it very short, simple words, it's a, that's an oversimplification. And the, and the thing is, if you're drawing your self-esteem from your expertise, when your expertise is challenged, it feels personal. If it feels personal, people are likely to get defensive. And it's not because... It's, it's not because they're stupid or they're not interested or they don't want to, right? The psychologist can show us it's a level of psychological complexity where that's just how our minds work. That's just how our meaning making works. Now, if that's the stage you're at, if, I, if we imagine me as a developer sitting down with uh, a tester and the tester saying to me, look, the way you've written the code isn't the best way to do it for me because I can't test it. If I'm drawing my self-esteem from my expertise as a developer, I'm likely to reject that and it might even start to think thoughts like, um, uh, well, I think what really needs to happen here is that you need to be a better tester. I think that's the problem. And, th and then we get this separation. Now, at the next stage of psychological complexity, and these stages are in a framework that we do move through these stages. Again, it's an oversimplification, but it's observable and hence measurable. At a slightly later stage of psychological complexity, things start to change. People start to recognize that the world is much more complex, that it's not black and white. And actually, there are multiple ways of doing things. So to go back to my example as a developer, the tester might say to me, this isn't the best way to write the code as far as I'm concerned. And what I'll hear is the, oh, as far as I'm concerned. It might be as far as I'm concerned, but it's not fair enough. It's not, as, what, how, can we, how can we change the way I'm writing the code to make it easier to test? But I can't do that if I respond like it's a personal criticism. Do you know what I mean? So what we started to uncover in the research is a correlation between how successful cross-functional teams can be and the level of psychological complexity in the leaders and the individuals in that team. Interesting. So there's a book that we've been reading at Easy Agile recently called Radical Candor. Uh, and really it comes down to being to giving constructive feedback to each other, not in a way where you're attacking them personally, but you're trying to be honest around 
how we can work more collaboratively. And, and like you said with that example, how can a developer write code in a way that the QA tester can actually perform the tests on it? For someone who's new to, to cross-functional ways of working, what advice does the research have around preparing that mindset to receive some of that radical candor, to receive that feedback in a way that you don't take it personally? Well, what, so, you, so it's a great question. You put it really well because radical candor is fine, right? We, we have, I, I work in a team that is very candid. We have some difficult conversations with them. We don't even really dress our words up and nobody, nobody gets offended. We just know that it's a shortcut. We might get our words wrong, but it's a shortcut to unlocking value, to finding out how to work together. But it's not about the words that each of us picks to express. It's about how the other chooses to react to the words landing as much as that. Now that's a dialogue. It's a two way thing. It takes two to tango, right? And the way we can develop a more, a mindset that's more suitable to cross-functional working is interesting. First of all, we've got to get out of comfort zone. We've got to be prepared to get out of comfort zone, not far necessarily, and not for very long necessarily, and not without support and understanding from the colleagues around us, but we do need to get out of comfort zone. Otherwise, psychological growth can't occur, right? This is what I'm talking to about um, now is the work really of um, Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy, who, who do a lot of work in dialogue, like Radical Candor. So we've got to get out of comfort zone, but we've also got to be addressing a complex problem with a group of people when we're outside of our comfort zone. And that complex problem has to be meaningful and it has to be salient. It has to be something that we care about. And it has to be something relevant to our day-to-day -day work. And if we've got those um, characteristics in the environment that we're working in, then there is an opportunity for individuals to choose to develop their own uh, psychological complexity. So that environment that has those characteristics, we would call, and this is Keegan's word, a, a, word, um, a deliberately developmental environment, because we can't separate the development of individual mindsets from the environment that that mindset functions in, right? The reason most of us have got a mindset um, uh, that draws self-esteem from expertise is because that's actually what most environments that we work in honor, right? That's, that works in a functional environment. It's why you get promoted. It's why you get hired. It's why you get your scrum master badge and all that other stuff that gives you status and makes you feel good. The world that we work in, for many of us, honors that expert way of making meaning. It doesn't honor learning and admission that yours might not be the best way to do things in the same way. So we have to shift the environment to support the individual to choose to take that developmental step because it can't be something that's done to them, right? You can't make people develop a more complex psychology. You can't train them to do it. You can only give them an environment that supports that step if they want to take it. And if they don't, fair enough, that, that's okay. But maybe cross-functional teams aren't for them if they don't, if they don't want to, because they're hard places to work, right? Is it a problem that people find their expertise or find, find their self-esteem from expertise? Is it, is it part of it encouraging them to find their their confidence in things outside of their work or is I, is expertise an honourable pursuit? I, I wouldn't say it's a problem at all, right? Expertise and the development of expertise is an honourable pursuit. Drawing your self-esteem from your expertise is a very necessary part of our psychological development. It's a stage that, that can't be skipped, really. I said to you before that I like I don't like to say things like that without the research base, but the psychologists certainly um, imply that it's a stage that can't be skipped. 
Um, so we've got to do it. We've got to go through this stage. The stage before we're drawing our self-esteem from our expertise is where we draw our self-esteem from our membership of the group. And that's very important too. If you think of us as children or, or um, being part of a group is essential for our survival. So ingratiating ourselves into that group, not rocking the boat so we don't jeopardize uh, our group membership is critical. But at some point, people start to realize, well, actually, I have to rock the boat a little bit if we want some direction. So separating your meaning making from drawing your self-esteem from the group to drawing your self-esteem from your expertise is a development in that sense. The drawing your self-esteem from your expertise means you can go, okay, the best way to write this code is X, let me train somebody to do it. It's critical. But like all developmental stages, it has its limitations. So it's not problematic in any way unless the individual is in a complex environment in which that expert way of making meaning isn't well suited. And then you've got a mismatch between psychological complexity and environmental complexity. And when you've got, when you've got a mismatch like that, the individual's anxiety uh, will go up, probably. Um, employee engagement goes down. Certainly well-being goes down. People revert to an earlier way of making their meaning that's more embedded in their expertise or, or, or the group, not rock, rock, just at the point they, they need to get more sophisticated. So the problem is the mismatch between psychological complexity and environmental complexity. That's why we need to support, as the world gets more complex, that's why we need to get all get better at supporting the development of individuals into a level of um, psychological complexity that suits the more complex environment. That, that's kind of the nub of the problem. Nothing wrong with being an expert and drawing your self-esteem from your expertise. People have done it forever and will continue to do so. You know, Every time you get in a, a flash car and you feel good because you're in a car, you're drawing your self-esteem from a status symbol, which is very similar to your expertise. You know, As a young man, I'd put on a sharp suit and I'd feel a million dollars. Nothing wrong with that at all, You know, but it's, it's limited. That, that's, that's the problem. Understood, understood. So... You've spoken about research and measurement and having an evidence-based way of making decisions. Um, when it comes to this cross-functional way of working or uh, digital transformation or teams moving from the old way of working to an agile way of working, do we have evidence to say one way of working is superior to another way of working? And, and when you're talking to these, these clients all these customers, can you guarantee that if they work in this way, it's going to lead to better outcomes for the business? How do you approach that conversation? No, we can't do either of those things. So I, I would never go anywhere near, and nor would our research saying that one way of working is better than another way of working. Or we can say, like the mindset and the environment, that there are ways of working that will work better depending on the problem that you're trying to solve. But it's very unlikely that one could be considered right and the other wrong in, in all sort of circumstances, you know. But yeah. more than that, I would say that it doesn't matter what your way of working is or the team's way of working is. If the mindset, if the way of making sense of the reality um, doesn't also shift, then you're just following a new process, a new way of working with the old way of thinking, and you're going to get the same results just with different words, right? So for me, and that isn't entirely true, right? I'm, I'm quite biased, I guess, in the work I do. I've got quite, I've got quite a perspective. If you shift mindset, then everything else will drop into place. 
if you change everything else, but don't shift mindset, nothing else will drop into place, right? What we can say, however, is that there are three elements of a cross-functional team that are hidden to people and organizations at the moment. So generally we think if we've got uh, people with the right experience and skills working suitably hard, then they're gonna work as a successful cross-functional team. And if they're not, they're, they're either not working hard, they're not the right type of person, or they haven't got the right set of skills. So fire them and hire somebody else or, give them, or put them on a training course and that'll solve the problem, which of course it doesn't. We would say that there are three other elements that remain hidden parts of a cross-functional team that are more critical than that. And we're beginning to be able to demonstrate that there is a correlation between these three things that I'm going to tell you about and both um, employee engagement and team performance. And these three hidden elements are uh, the structure of the social networks that underpin the way people work, right? So if we think about how we as groups of human beings organize ourselves, we might think about hierarchies and, and hierarchy diagrams and org charts and bosses and stuff. That's not really very important for a cross-functional team. What's much more important is the social network that develops across that team. Who works with whom? and when and how, right? Do the developers and the testers and the testers and the ops guys and the, and the designers and the technical architects, do they all work together in a cross-functional team? Now that's a social network. That's a network that's formed um, through individual autonomy because they wanna get the job done, not because the boss says you've gotta go and do it. In fact, it can't be done because the boss says go and do it. So we have worked with some friends in um, academia with a, um, actually an Australian company called Polynode um, to measure there are various ways we can get the data what those social networks look like and the structure of those social networks is key right as we look at the structure of social networks we can see whether those teams look like they're functioned uh, sorry organized hierarchically or where they're organized for cross-functional working because of the network structure so network structure is one element the other is psychological complexity so we've worked with a, a gentleman called david rook who did the did original research and developed a psychometric instrument that can measure an individual stage of psychological complexity both the structure and the substructure so we can and that mindset complexity is also linked along with network structure to where the teams can function cross-functionally. The third thing that was um, the hardest bit, the last bit of the jigsaw that we sort of put into our hypothesis is we need to have adequate degrees of autonomy. We needed to develop a much better understanding of what it means for a team to be autonomous than we had and how that autonomy relates to control and how control undermines autonomy and how we all tend to be orientated to taking the cues in the environment either as instructions which we must comply with or invitations to be autonomous and we now have another psychometric instrument so the third instrument that we use that we call the motivational orientation scale <coughs> excuse me that can measure an individual's likelihood to interpret inbound information as um, an instruction or an invitation to be autonomous. And once we know that, we can start to challenge this common perception within product teams, software teams, that the, the team is autonomous, right? Because everybody thinks they are autonomous. And in fact, everybody is, research shows, mostly autonomous. But we might be like, almost entirely autonomous, or we might be 60% autonomous. You know, we, we can measure this. And then we can say to teams, look, you, you lot are autonomous as a bunch of individuals, but you also have this control thing going on where you're responding to inbound requests. 
and we need to be more autonomous. So once we can start to measure it, we can start to challenge their ideas of how autonomous they are, and we can start to examine where the teams are choosing to respond from their control orientation or their autonomy. So they're the three things, autonomy and control, complexity of mindset and network structure equal employee engagement and team performance. That's what our research says. So, so what we can say is, to your question at the beginning, that there is a, a, there is a, a network structure, a level of psychological complexity and an amount of autonomy that correlates to successfully working as a cross-functional team. And in that sense, we might think that those levels are, are right in some sense. Okay. Okay. So what does a 100% autonomous team look like and do they still have interaction with, say, the executive team on a day-to-day basis or are they, are they at odds, those two concepts? No, they, they're not at odds. They do have, uh, they might have day-to-day I suppose they, w- they will have either directly or indirectly interactions with the executive team. So the first thing we need to bear in mind here is that the, um, uh, the research that we're leaning on is something called self-determination theory, um, which is a theory of motivation. And, and it has quite a specific definition of autonomy, which is not what we might normally think. Often autonomy is taken to mean in sort of the, sort of the general use, independence. So if we buy a company, we might leave it to run autonomously, which would mean we just left it alone for a while right? And autonomy in this context doesn't mean that. It means individuals acting of their own volition, individuals deciding how to act towards a common purpose. So the team has to have the vision which they can self-organize around, right? You can't self-organize without autonomy. If you haven't got autonomy, you have to wait to be told what to do, and then it's not self-organization, right? So autonomy leads to self-organization, and self-organization can be around a a common vision or a set of goals or, you know, an OKR is quite a a sophisticated way to do it instead of management by objective. Then we can self-organize in a way that sort of honors the need to be part of an organization, you know, doing some coordinated work, but that doesn't rely on a manager telling the individual what to do. That's what an autonomous team looks like. An autonomous team, you need the autonomy, but is really a self-organizing team. And the self-organizing team is deciding what the team ought to do in order to achieve a wider objective, which could be integrating with other self-organizing teams. And obviously the direction is set often uh, by the executive. So all these things sort of come into play, right? It's not a question of control on the one hand or autonomy on the other or agile on one hand or um, waterfall on the other. So we've got to blend the two, we've got to balance them. And that balance needs to shift, not only across teams, but also depending on the level that the organization is, uh, the, the team is working in the organization. And what I mean by that is the need for control and measurement increases in many ways as you go higher up the organization. So we want high degrees of autonomy at a team level where we're creating customer value, but we need to recognize that that self-organizing team has a legitimate requirement to integrate with some elements of control in the organization because if we don't have some elements of control then we can't do the accounting and be accountable for where we share where we spend investors or shareholders money you know what i mean so it's much more complex than the sort of the dichotomized world that people tend to look at which is a bit black and white is it agile or is it waterfall are we autonomous or are we control orientated well you're both and the blend of which needs to shift depending on the environment that you're in okay 
Okay. So there's there's always a need for for a bit of control uh, on top of the autonomy. Uh, it's, a, it's a balance, right? Yeah. We're all comfortable with control, aren't we? We all comply with speed limits, for example, and we're perfectly okay with that. Control is not a dirty word, right? Some We all do things that we're told to do sometimes and we're happy to do it. Sometimes we do it begrudgingly. We're not happy to do it. Sometimes we reject it. There's nothing wrong with control in itself. It's the overuse of control to coerce people to do things yes. that they don't want to do that's when it becomes problematic because it undermines an individual uh, an individual's autonomy which is a basic universal psychological need we all need to have a sufficient degree of autonomy to to feel well right mm. okay okay so we know that agile's had had a good run it's been decades now right so do you still find that you you come across the same objections when you're speaking to these executive teams or these companies that are perhaps from more traditional industries? Do they still have the same objections to, to change as they did in the past? And how do you try and overcome them? Uh, yes, they do. So one of my strangest experiences as um, you know, a young projects or program manager or whatever I was is that when I would end up in a room full of software developers who uh, you know, were agile, probably the language they would have used at the time, and a bunch of uh, infrastructure engineers who followed Waterfall. And the distaste for one group, for the other, you know, it was almost visceral. And you could see it in them, right? You know, there would be a bunch in, uh, I don't know, Linux T-shirts and jeans, and then the infrastructure waterfall people would probably be wearing suits. I mean, it was really obvious, you know, and, and they just, and you couldn't, it was hard to bring these groups together. That was my experience in, let's say, round about 2000. I sat with a client yesterday who said exactly the same thing. They said that in their organization, which is going through a very large uh, agile transformation at the moment, they said these were their words. We kind of got people at the two extremes. We can sort of bookend it. We've got the waterfall people who think their way is best, and we've got the agile people who are totally on board with agile transformation. And what I heard when the individual said that, it was quite a senior leader, is the agile people are on board with the agile transformation, brackets, because they think their way of working is best. You know, and what I tried to point out to that senior manager was that that whilst one group, there were perceptions anyway, that one group was into agile and got cross-functional working, all that got cross-functional working, and, um, and the other group didn't, actually, the two groups were operating in the same way, right? They both thought their way of working was right, you know, and one was espousing the virtues of waterfall and the other agile. But the fact was they both thought that they were right and the other was wrong. And they were both wrong in that, you know. Waterfall works really, really well in a lot of scenarios. And full-on agile works really, really well in some uh, environments. In some environments, it's quite limited, by the way, in my opinion. Um, my friend and colleague, John Kern, who's a co-author of the... Um, Agile Manifesto in 2001 or 2004, whatever it was, I can't remember. He says, I love waterfall. I do loads of waterfall. I just do it in very small chunks, <laughs> you know? 
Um, because the fact is, we've, we've got to do work sequentially in some manner, right? I can't work yes. on an infinite yes. number of things in parallel. There has to be a sequence. And, and that really, when I heard him say that, it sort of filled my heart with joy in a way. Because as a, for somebody with a waterfall background, I used to say, look, I don't get this. In, 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 in um, waterfall project management, we're talking about stages. And in Agile, we're talking about sprints. And they've both got an end, one's got a definition of done, and one's got some acceptance criteria, and they've both got a, be a beginning. The only difference is the language and the duration. So what if we make sprints, uh, sorry, stages, 10 days long? What's the difference now? And, and yet people would, well, you know, we're agile and we do sprints and that would still be a stage. Oh, come on. You know, we've got to find some common ground, right, to build a, a common meaning making between large groups of people. Otherwise, only the the agilistas amongst us can be can work for agile organizations and everybody else is doomed and that's that's not true is it that's that's nonsense right so we've got to come together and find these ways of working as my friend john kern points out so eloquently okay that's good advice so for these for some people that you meet there's still this resistance um that has been around for, for many years. How do you go about encouraging people to get out of their comfort zone, to try this cross-functional way of working and be more transparent, I guess, with, with contributing to the team and not necessarily pushing towards uh, being just an individual contributor? Another great question, Sean. So we've, there are a couple of ways we can do it. The psychometric instrument that I met, that, that I mentioned earlier that can sort of measure, I kind of always put that inverted commas because it, it doesn't really measure anything, it assesses, I suppose, is a really, really powerful tool. Off the back of that measurement, the psychologist that we work with can create a report that explains lots of this sort of meaning-making stuff, adult developmental psychology to the individual, and it tends to be mind-blowing. Right, It really shifts people's perspective about what they are and how they're operating in the world. Once people start to understand that there are these developmental stages and we all move through them, potentially to the last days of our life, we can start to see that disagreements, they just start to fall away. Disagreements start to fall away because they cease to be seen as opposing views that can't be reconciled because I'm this type of person and they're that type of person. And they start to be seen as incompatibilities in meaning making. So people start to go, okay, well, I think this and you think that how are we both making our meaning around this that means we can't see others perspective and immediately then you started to find a mechanism to find some common ground so the leadership development profile report which is the report that comes from the psychometric instrument really sheds a lot of light on for the individual both on how they're working and what development looks like what psychological development looks like for them so that's a powerful tool. We have a, another service that we call Dialogue Partnering, which we're piloting, which is sort of a one, over an eight or 10 week program. It's a one-on-one -on -one, uh, collaborative inquiry into how an individual is making their meaning and what the strengths of their meaning making and the limitations of their meaning making are. And once people start to realize that the way, the reason they feel defensive because the way they code has just been criticized is because they're drawing their meaning from being the best coder on the planet. But there is a development path that, that leaves that behind, which is where many, many people get to. 
it's kind of like an aha moment. People just realize that reality is different to what they thought and it can be adjusted. So the LDP, the Leadership Development Profile Reports, dialogue partnering and working with senior management to create a deliberately developmental environment, which get which does those things I mentioned before. They're the critical tools that we use to help individuals unlock their own psychological development. And the question is, of course, why would they be motivated to do this? Why would they care? And they care because you know, 80% of people have got a very low level of um, uh, engagement in their work. Most people are treading water, killing time. It's not a joyous place to be. Once people start to work in cross-functional teams and, you know, get involved in joyous work with their colleagues to create things they couldn't, which is a basic human instinct, right? That's a buzz. Then you come into work and enjoying yourself. That's what I said to you at the beginning of our call, right? I'm having a great time. I'm working with some brilliant people, unlocking new knowledge that we believe humankind doesn't have. That's a buzz. I'm not treading water in my role. You know what I mean? And this isn't unique to me. In, in my view, the whole world could be like that. We could all work in roles like that. Maybe that is going a bit far. But certainly many more of us could than currently do, you know. So, so get on board with the psychological development and, you know, enjoy your role more. Enjoy your work. It's a lot of time, right? Yeah, I really resonate with what you said about about the buzz. And I've seen that happen when the light bulb comes on in people and, it's no longer this factory line of work getting passed down to you, but you realise you're now part of a team. Everyone's there to support you. You're working towards a common goal and it's transparent. You can see what other people are working on and, and you're helping each other uh, build something together. It's actually fun. For the first time in a lot of people's careers, it's, it's a fun and enjoyable experience to come to work. So that must make you feel really good about doing what you do. Yeah, it does. It's why I get out of bed and, it, and it's what I've been about for 20 years, trying to, trying, trying to unlock this, really yeah. help other people unlock this. I got a phone call from a, a colleague the other day who said um, they were doing some exercise and they were thinking about their new role and they thought to themselves, this is what it feels like to do joyous work, right? And I, I mean, that's like, right, job done. Because this is a very capable individual. And once they're feeling like that, you know that they're going to do great things. When they're feeling like they're, you know, other people feeling, you know, that people are clock watching or there's this culture of busyness where we can't admit that we don't know things and that we've got to be in a meeting doing something, you know. In, in the transparent world that you were just talking about, if I haven't got any work to do, I can just sit and say, I haven't got any work to do. I'm waiting for more stuff to arrive. And it's not a bad thing. It's like, great, you're working at a sustainable pace. That's a good thing. You know, in the, I worked for a Swiss bank for years and years, working at a sustainable pace, nobody was interested. You need to work at a full on, flat out, unsustainable pace. And when you're burnt out, you can go and we'll get somebody else to come in and do it. That's how it works. That's miserable. It's not what we want, Sean, is it? You know what I mean? It's not what we want. And unfortunately, a lot of a lot of people have been there before and they've experienced it and they once they see the light, they never want to go back to it, which I guess is a good thing. Once you recognise that there's a better way. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Okay, well, I think we're going to wrap up shortly. I've, I do have two more questions for you before we, we call an end. I'll try and keep the answers brief. Sure. That's, no, that's fine. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I could probably go for another hour, but I know we've got other things to do. So in, in the research, I, I've read some of your blog posts and I, I watched some of your, the talks that you've done at events in the past. And you, you speak about this concept of hidden commitments. And I'd just like to learn 
a bit more, what is a hidden commitment and what's the implication? Great question. So um, Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy, developmental psychologists, uh, wrote a book called Immunity to Change, right? And this is, an, this is a book that I read year, a few years ago. And in there, they talk about, Bob um, and Lisa talk about um, hidden commitments. And so they start by pointing out that um, we all make New Year's resolutions and they all fail, right? And we really mean them when we make them. And, you know, when I was in my late teens, maybe I, I really did mean them when I made them, but I'd never keep them, right? Um, in, in another book, Keegan points out, I, I think it's in the, a book called The Evolving Self, he points out that um, a large majority of men after they've had heart attacks, I think it's a study in America, but it's a while since I read it, like, I think it's six out of seven don't change either their diet or their exercise regime after they've had a heart attack. And the reason he uses that as a case study in the book, because he's pointing out that it's not that these people don't know what to do, right? You need to less calories in, more out, right? Um, and it's not that they're not made, motivated to do it. They've had a, a near-death experience, right? They'd like to stay alive, we, we presume, yet still they don't make any meaningful change. Their diet, their exercise regime, why not? And what Bob and Lisa say in the book is that it's down, and from their research, is that it's down to hidden commitments. We all have our way of making meaning, right? We have our values and our assumptions that we absorb from society as if by osmosis, right? And we don't question them. We can't question all of the assumptions uh, that we absorb as we grow up. It's just not possible. So we have these hidden assumptions that we're committed to, hidden commitments. And sometimes these hidden commitments conflict with our stated objectives. And when the hidden commitment conflicts with our stated objective, the result is that we get very confused about the fact that, they, that the stated objective sort of falls, or falls by the wayside and we don't really understand why. We might think, I would think a common outcome is, well, I just need to try harder, I just need more willpower. You know, I just need to stay the course. And it's not true. Very often, um, there, is a, there, there is something else in your meaning making that's conflicted with that stated objective. And once you can surface it, then you can start to examine that hidden commitment and you can play around with it. And when you can play around with it, then you're adjusting your meaning making. And um, the, the technique that we use in dialogue partnering comes from Bob and, and Lisa's book, where we're essentially uncovering those hidden commitments and seeing how they conflict with commitments. So that, that sort of, and then, then once you can see it and you can experiment with it, you can start to unlock change in yourself. Peter Senge, um, I think he's director of innovation. He's a very famous name, but a director of innovation for MIT. And he has a beautiful uh, little quote. He says, what, something like, what folly it is to think of transforming our organizations without transforming ourselves, right? It, and we need to change our relationship with power in order to change the way power is distributed across our organizations. And that's an example of a hidden commitment that we don't normally think about, right? We just think we can empower people magically whilst retaining all the power for the senior manager. And, and that just doesn't work, right? There's a, hidden, there's a hidden commitment conflicting with the idea that we want to empower our teams, which is a quite a flawed idea. Wow. Okay. Well, I, I really like the approach to, to work and looking at at the social structure, the social networks, and the psychology behind it all. It's, it's really fascinating and it's not something I've really come across before, especially in the agile space. So that's, that's, uh, that's really unique. Thanks for sharing that, John. Last question, last question for you. Uh, 2020 has been interesting to say the least. We've talked about some things that, that have stayed the same over your career, some things that have changed. What do you think 
is going to come next, looking forward to the next five, 10 years? What are some of those trends that you think are really going to stand out and maybe cha- change the way that, that, your, that your work, uh, it, it changes the way that, that your nine to five looks or changes the way that you interact with your, your clients? I think that uh, it won't, this, this won't just change the way my nine to five looks. It'll change the way everybody's nine to five looks, right? I think that the, the, the world is in a difficult place. You know, a lot of us are upset and it looks like a bit of a mess and we're all anxious, I think. A lot of us are anxious. But as um, a friend said to me, he was quoting somebody else, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? The amount of change, there's a lot of energy in the system. The amount of change that's in the system is palpably changing things. Many of us recognize there must be a better way of doing things because our ways of organizing ourselves as society, including our organizations, is collapsing. It doesn't work anymore. People are realizing through work that, you know, people like the names I've mentioned and and through our original research, I, I, I hope will sort of contribute in an original way to this, that there is a better way of organizing ourselves, that humankind does have the knowledge and the experience to do what we need to do. It just isn't in IT, right? We need to look outside of IT to what the psychologists say about mindset, not what the agile people say about mindset. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes, what a yes. radical idea. And as we import this learning and this knowledge, we have a framework that helps us understand to a much greater degree what's really going on and how we can unlock real change. So everything that I've talked about today, very little of it is original, right? We have some original work we haven't really talked about. It doesn't matter. The, the knowledge is out there. If we do the people and culture bit and the tools and the methodology together, then it scales. Then we change the way organizations work, which is going to change everybody's nine to five. Oh, that's great. It's, it's bringing it back to basics, isn't it? What do we know about human beings and now let's that, let's apply that to to what we know about work. So that's really eye opening, and I've learned a lot from our conversation, John. I've got a few books and a few research papers to go and look at after this. So thank you so much for appearing on the Easy Job podcast, and we yeah we really appreciate your time. Sure, my pleasure. I mean, I love and we uh, love adaptivists just sharing what we're doing, so we can all engage in more joyous work man so thanks for helping us get the get the message out there hi team sean blake here and i wanted to say thank you again for listening to the easy agile podcast before you go could i ask a favor could you please hit the subscribe button in your podcasting app and leave a review we'd really appreciate it if you're interested in how easy agile apps for jira can help your team work better together head on over to easyagile.com forward slash podcast for a free demo. That's easyagile.com forward slash podcast for a free demo and information on how to start a free trial today. Until next time, this has been the Easy Agile Podcast. Thank you.